I teach movement um, and you've got a pretty eclectic movement background, not just from wrestling and jujitsu, but also doing theater. And honestly, I think magic as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're also, um, I was telling my, my wife, Alexa, her, her dad was like, oh, well, who are you talking to tonight? And I was kind of telling him about you. And he was like, oh, he's a polymath. <laughs> and he's like, you know, somebody who does a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. So, the, yeah, I guess that's what he is. But, I mean, you've got a lot of uh, interests and in, in things that you really, like, invest a lot of time in. And I think that that's really interesting. Um, so, I just remember when we first spoke, and it's the only time we actually spoke. Yeah. Um, we were talking a lot about like being a generalist. We were also talking about theater and everything. Yep. I really want to know at least to start just about like being a wrestler in college at your level. And maybe you can even describe what that level means. Yeah. And to be studying theater at the same time and like balancing those two worlds. Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, I've always kind of, I think March to a slightly different drum beat than a lot of other uh, athletes, you know, especially as you, I think as you climb the ranks in, in sport, you are pressured to uh, really specialize your, you know, it's like all of your hobbies, all the things that you're interested in outside of your sport, you better sacrifice if you want to be good at this one thing. Um, And that's something that I think every athlete is taught either implicitly or explicitly. And for me, I was lucky in that I was good enough at my sport early enough on that it gave me permission to continue to pursue the things outside of my sport that gave me balance and um, made me happy. Right. So, I, so, when, so when you say early on, does that mean like middle school, high school? Like when were you like, oh, like I'm good at this or people are like giving you recognition? Yeah. So my, uh, I grew up in, in like a soccer town, so it wasn't it wasn't cool to wrestle. Nobody really cared about wrestling. Yeah. But when I moved, I moved in, um, in sixth grade to, to a wrestling town. Uh-huh. And, and it was actually the, like my fifth grade to sixth grade year that I really kind of, I don't know, emerged or really kind of like stepped up my, my game in a, in a amazing way. Mm-hmm. I, my fifth grade year, I clocked like a, a tournament every weekend. So I just like, I gained so much experience in that one year that um, in sixth grade, I won nationals for the first time. Mm-hmm. And then in like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I was kind of, uh, you know, top five in the country at my age group weight class. Mm-hmm. So I was you know, super competitive in my local town. I was, you know, one of the, one of, if not the best wrestler on the team. Mm-hmm. And so with that came permission to, you know, leave practice early to go, to the to ballet rehearsal right or to you know to the choir or um these are the things you were doing in like middle school and high school yeah yeah so in middle school so i was in the choir in middle school Mm -hmm. and you know i think it it was an interesting transition for me because um i think you know for a lot of kids band and choir are kind of like pseudo recesses like where you like you don't really pay attention you just kind of joke around with your friends but uh when I, in the choir, I started to get solo. They like the teacher gave me attention and was like, Hey, you can sing. Like you're going to sing the, you're going to sing the lead of this in this song that we're doing. And that just gave me confidence and made me more interested in it. And, um, and then, yeah. And, and then, uh, 
there was a girl in my middle school who's, I think my, their parent, my our parents were talking and the one mom was saying to my mom, like, oh, well, they don't have any boys in the ballet and we need boys to do the lifting. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, I got volunteered to be in the ballet. So I did the ballet, you know, I was in the Nutcracker and, um, yeah. So, and then, and then after a while, it kind of became a part of my identity and mm-hmm. it was like, okay, theater and the arts and music, um, where were spaces where I felt like it was okay. I was given permission to explore emotion. I was given permission to wear different shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just such a foreign experience than what I felt like most wrestling environments were. It was like, hey, you must look, act, and dress a very particular way. So, um, so yeah, I, I tried to participate in the theater and in the choir as much as I possibly could all throughout high school so much so that when it became time for me to go to college, I really wanted to go to a program that, um, that where I felt I could actually pursue both. Um, so I went to Maryland first as a, as a music uh, minor and, and a theater major. Um, so, and, yeah. you, and, you, and you were on like a wrestling scholarship. Yep. So I was, a, I, I was fortunate enough to have a full ride. Um, and there were a lot of schools that I, that I was choosing from. Um, but again, Maryland was one of those places where I felt like I could both excel athletically and be an individual. Yeah. And there were a lot of other places where I was looking where it was like, okay, it was very clear to me that I could be a badass wrestler, but it wasn't clear that I really would, that it was acceptable to do anything other than wrestle. Well, I know people, it's like wrestling is one of those sports. Like, I mean, I think like most sports when people are at that level, but wrestling, it's just like, it's year round training. Right. And people get burnt out. I, I think I might've told you this. I knew a guy who had won like the state championship in Nevada, I think freshman through senior year. Wow. He was basically offered to go anywhere he wanted to go, but he was like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Like I've trained four years, 365 days. Like I'm, I'm just, I'm over it. Yeah. I but think it's, uh, No, I was just going to say, you know, I think that 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 happens in so many different sports and it's, um, it's so sad and unfortunate, but I think it's also a byproduct of like, there's a lot of athletes that are not given the autonomy to pursue the sport for their, for themselves. Yeah. It's almost the pressure of their friends, their family, and you end up um, having a sort of the shadow of responsibility that pushes you forward in, in, in continuous pursuit of, of your goals. Right. Um, and yeah, and, and I think that that's a lot for me, that's like why I saw a lot of kids around me quitting the sport because they weren't in it for themselves. They were in it for their, for their father, for their mother, for their siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not sustainable in, in any pursuit. So. Yeah. Do you think, and I know that there's, just from the life balance, getting to do all these other things kept your head on straight to continue pursuing wrestling. But do you think, or have you reflected on like the skills, like the creative skills that you extracted that you maybe can't even explain from these other worlds actually benefiting your ability as a wrestler? Very much so. So I, I, um, I believe I, I'm a, I was a very creative wrestler. So mm-hmm. I was always, even in, at, in college, I was trying to create new moves. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and I would spend a lot of time kind of playing with new ideas, new techniques. Um, and it's pretty amazing, things. which is pretty amazing. Cause I feel like wrestling has been around for so long that I assume like not a lot of new things get created that often. Right. Yeah. But it's just, I mean, new things come up, but it just, um, you know, there aren't many spaces that uh, give you permission to question mm-hmm. what is or the way that things are done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was good enough like on top and I could turn enough people that, that it just enabled, I had so much control in certain positions mm-hmm. that I could really start to bend rules and at times even break rules to see, Hey, are, are there actually new areas of technical exploration that, that might make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that permission to bend rules con- came from the environments that I was in, in art in theater in music and in dance, um, where, you know, it's not as if you're following a, a, a written playbook, mm-hmm. like in art, you know, the, the, the you know, an, an artist craft is only limited by their imagination mm-hmm. um, and the medium that they're using. And, and I think that, um, that that was a really helpful and important part of my, my wrestling, my training. Um, and, and, you know, although there were certainly really radical, weird techniques that I was trying to come up with, I, I think probably more often than not, it was being able to think creatively in different situations, um, which maybe wasn't a new technique, but would enable me to, to convert, uh, a takedown into back points in a way that normally wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know for the folks who are tuning in uh, how much they know about wrestling, but you know, if you're trying to turn somebody onto their back to, to expose their back to the mat, to secure back points, Mm -hmm. you're probably going to be using, you know, you're going to be trying to grab their arm and, you know, rip t- turn their arm over their head, or you're going to be trying to turn their hips with your legs in some way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you learn as a wrestler, a very, a limited number of ways to grab an arm, to grab a wrist, to grab a hand. And I think that the creativity comes from finding new ways of creating grips mm-hmm. that enable you to accomplish standard turns and techniques. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I, w- I think I was very good at, at converting positions into back points mm-hmm. in ways that really opened up my matches so that against the best talent, you know, I was, I could go up by a couple points mm-hmm. and, you know, I think it made a huge impact on my, my win record. So do you look back on it and like, I, like I watched that film um, in search of greatness. I think I might've even suggested it to you where they interviewed Gretzky and stuff like that. And all of three of the guys, uh, him, Jerry Rice, Pele, they all like spoke about what they did and referred to it more as like artistry when they reflected on it than really athleticism. And it's kind of like what you're describing now, right? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm making, this is my art. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think, Um, when I look at the sort of landscape of top wrestlers, um, they do certain moves completely differently than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is their signature (laughs) 
technique. It's their signature style. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, and I think that there is sort of artistic flow. I don't know. I don't know what the right words are, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that that's an accurate thing to say at that level. Mm -hmm. And were you like, were you kind of, I don't know, were you hanging out more with like people in the theater program or were you hanging out more with people in the wrestling program or, or were you somewhere in between? Like what, what was like, where were the, what were the groups you were gravitating towards? You know, I, I think I, I actually probably spent more of my time with wrestlers mm -hmm. just because that was the housing situation. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that despite my athletic ability, I am not really much of an uh, of a sports fan. Mm -hmm. um, I never really had a team, had a sport, had an athlete that I followed on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even though I was in a very um, an environment that was surrounded by athletes and athlete thinking and athlete talk. Mm -hmm. um, I was much more interested in talking about politics and philosophy. Yeah. And um, academically, I was taking classes that no other athletes were really taking. Mm -hmm. um, so even though at Maryland, I started as a theater major and a music minor, I soon found out that I didn't actually have time to do any performances mm -hmm. as a division one athlete. So uh, it just turned turned out that at Maryland you can create your own major. Mm -hmm. So I actually uh, I went ahead and did that. It's amazing, um, which was an amazing process. And you you pick your classes from the existing curriculum, mm -hmm. go in front of a board of faculty, and you defend your curriculum, your your major. Mm -hmm. um, and so I ended up majoring in uh, interactive performance art. So it okay. was kind of a combination of art theater, American studies, philosophy, um, women's studies, kind of all, all rolled into one. Yeah. And, uh, and so as a result, you know, even though I was living with wrestlers, I was thinking and studying in spaces that were very far removed from the traditional sports spaces that I occupied. It also sounds like you're just like, when you describe this, like you're somebody who kind of like embraces being in like uncomfortable positions right like that's kind of what because i i guess i started going to marcello's after you had already been there a little while but you know i'm friends with chris and i think you guys went to high school together or something yeah yeah and you know i remember him telling me like oh you know hudson you know he was like a multiple time like national champion wrestler and all these things and you know he's the real deal but you're like you know you were a you're a purple belt, I think. Mm -hmm. So someone who's like in, in some form of like a grappling art been at the top, top of the mountain. And then, then the willingness to be like, yeah, like I'm totally cool being a white belt and just like walking in here. I don't think a lot of people would do that. Um, so I find that really interesting, but it sounds to me like the way you describe like your willingness to just kind of throw on different hats and be like, yeah, I want to, I, I, being good at something's not enough. You're like, I want to, I want to stink at something else now. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I, I think so much of society trains us to have very fragile egos. Yeah. You know, and, and this is probably part of what we were talking about. Um, and, and that, so that book, I think you recommended range, mm -hmm. um, really spoke to me because, 
you know, in, in school, we are, we're pushed down an area of specialization. Mm-hmm. And that specialization protects our ego because after time we get good at it. And then we're, we're a little less um, willing to go into new areas where we are not quite as polished. Mm-hmm. And I think that that happens uh, academically. It then happens professionally. It happens in sport. It's, it's why I think we're seeing younger and younger athletes also are, spe- are, are specializing earlier and earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the byproduct of that is actually really fragile egos. And, you know, it's, it's, it's why I think one of the challenges in wrestling is, you know, you could have a kid who's a four-time state champ, you know, they're, they're a big fish in a small pond, and then they go on to that collegiate level, and they just can't handle that pressure, and they never do anything at the collegiate level. Um, now, I don't know how that does or doesn't happen in other sports, but I see it, it happens every single year in wrestling, that some of the top kids in the country out of high school do not become all Americans, barely even make the lineup in college. Mm-hmm. And, and I see that as fundamentally an issue with ego. Right. That, that there are not a lot of athletes who, but individuals who are comfortable being a white belt in right. whatever. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I want to be a white belt. I want to, um, seek out those spaces where I, where I suck and I need to get better and I need to improve. Um, now I wouldn't say that I'm interested in all areas of being a white belt. <laughs> uh, there are some like very specific things that interest me, mm-hmm. um, where like, for instance, you know, the spaces that I explore being a white belt are those kind of activities that I can pursue in like a two or three hour time span. Mm-hmm and then go, go back to my usual life, right? I don't have enough time to master a process that's going to take me tens of thousands of hours mm-hmm. just to complete one painting or one, uh, I don't know, I don't know what, the, what hobby or, or, or profession that might be, but I do have enough time in my life to give two hours of dedicated time to, uh, for instance, I'm trying to learn calligraphy right now, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, does it suck? Absolutely, but I can I can commit two to three hours every couple of days to mm-hmm. just writing calligraphy, and I get better over time. And so for me, um, I really enjoy trying to be that white belt in in whatever I can. Um, I think it it keeps I don't know it makes life more interesting and enjoyable, and um, I get to try new things and experience new things. And I also think that some of the greatest uh, like inventions or achievements in society have happened because of interdisciplinary knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so my hope is that also as I acquire more interdisciplinary skills, mm-hmm. one of these days I'm going to stumble upon some intersection at the, at, at the, you know, at the intersection of two of my hobbies and it's just mm-hmm. going to be the, the coolest thing ever. But well, it's like the, it's the intersection of interdisciplinary skills, you know, you know, like that's where innovation comes when you work with other people like that. But then it's also the willingness to fail, right? Like people think like they're too afraid, whatever, to open a small business or like run with an idea because they're like, ah, oh, like if I fail, like I'm so addicted to competence and my ego so fragile, like I can't let that happen. I'm going to subscribe to whatever the thing, like I'm not willing to be a heretic in that way. Mm-hmm. But it comes from that willingness to be like, yeah, like, 
we're gonna I'm gonna slip and fall and like then we try it on a different thing and I think that comes from wearing a lot of different hats and, and being that white belt and not just being a white belt until you're 10 years old and then being like okay well now I've got to be perfect and ready to go yeah so when did so after you finished college and you've like you what you you won you were like a three-time all-american mm-hmm. and I don't know, you know, like when you leave college and you have that kind of recognition for the thing that you've done, do you go right into the workforce or are you somebody, like I know other people who are recognized, not super famous, but like athletes of like a certain level Mm -hmm. and that carries them into other things. Did that, is that what happened to you as well? So my sort of senior season, there was a couple life paths that were presenting themselves to me. Um, so I, I did get a scholarship to go to grad school. So I was, I was thinking about going to law school. Mm -hmm. I I, like studied and took the LSAT and was like, Oh, maybe I'll, I'll go down that path. That would be really cool. I was also really interested in continuing to train and compete. So become a coach, train for Olympics, you know, and just try to do as much, see see how far the sport could take me. Um, and then third was really this moment of, that is where I am today of, of kind of athlete activism. Mm-hmm. Um, my senior season, you know, I was started the season ranked number two in the country, training to win a national title. And I decided to start the season wearing an LGBTQ sticker on my headgear mm-hmm. to show support as an ally for the LGBTQ community. And in response to that, um, I got about 2000 emails from closeted athletes wow. who wrote to me and said, Hey, I just read this article about you wearing this sticker and I'm going to try out for my wrestling team. I'm going to go into the locker room and, you know, not be afraid, or I'm going to start standing up and speaking out as an ally. And so that really fundamentally changed my life because, you know, I just, Hey, I realized that there's this entire population of people that is being systematically excluded from sport. Um, excluded from having the same positive experiences that I had. And that is a tragedy that is playing out every day in this country at every level of of sport. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the second thing I kind of realized is that if I could get 2000 emails as a wrestler, man, if I had been a football player or an entire team or an entire league taking a stand, um, that impact would have been, you know, exponentially larger. So, um, so that was a big, shift in my life where I really realized that there wasn't enough people who are trying to um, change sports culture for the better. Um, and so after I graduated from, from Maryland, I, I did become an assistant wrestling coach at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, I did try to train and compete for a little bit, but athlete, I started a nonprofit shortly after graduating mm-hmm. uh, called athlete ally. And that just kind of took off and, uh, so I, I founded Athlete Ally in January of 2011, and that's now my full-time job today. And um, yeah, I continue to try to grow the organization and, and build the team. So what inspired you to put the sticker on? Like, where, were you having certain conversations? What was, I mean, I don't know what year this was. What was the climate? Like, what were you looking at and thinking like, oh, like this, I need, I, this is, this means a lot to me right now. Yeah, it was a bunch of things. I mean, um, you know, first, because of all the classes that I was taking, I was actually getting educated about my own privilege, my own place within 
a system of discrimination, mm-hmm. um, you know, really started to get educated about LGBTQ issues and the movement in ways that were just completely foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, a lo- kind of a long, slow process of education. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I was also getting more politically involved. So, you know, Maryland was not that far from DC. So out of season on the weekends, I was trying to, I was campaigning for uh, Obama, mm-hmm. you know, trying to help him make it to the White House, going down to Virginia on the weekends, which, you know, just feeling inspired, feeling idealistic, trying to really just feel like I could change the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when Obama got elected, it was a, obviously a huge, amazing historic moment. But at that same time, um, you had Prop 8 passing in California. So there was a bunch of marriage equality amendments and bills that were up, uh, that, were ba- that, that were being voted on. Mm-hmm. And so California was one of the states that actually struck down marriage at that time. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it just became more and more clear to me that this is... I feel, and I still feel like it's one of the civil rights uh, fights of our generation. I mean, I think that um, now, obviously, like it's interesting talking today because there's been a historic uh, Supreme Court case which has expanded workplace protections to the LGBTQ community in an unprecedented way. But prior to that SCOTUS decision, you know, there are lots of LGBTQ folks who could be fired. Uh, if their employer found out, they could be denied housing, um, denied places of public accommodation, which we continue to see those laws pop up. So, um, yeah, it was it was really the sort of my journey and the reason why I started to care was like like realizing my that that we're responsible for whatever history of which we are a part, mm-hmm. and that if I'm part of a community that is isolating and excluding and othering anyone, that I'm responsible for that in some way. And so I just got to this place uh, in my career where I was like, look, I'm a captain of my team. I'm an all-American athlete. I have nothing to be afraid of. I know what I believe in, and I'm going to do whatever I can to try to make my team as welcoming and respectful as possible. Um, And I thought that wearing the sticker was kind of my most authentic way of showing support and trying to make a difference. And what was the reaction from your teammates and coaches and things? Uh, there was definitely some heated, um, arguments, fights, Mm -hmm. if you will. Um, you know, I, I think that throughout all of sports, there's this phrase that keeps getting said, which is like, stick to sports, you know, uh, stick to sports. What was the one that, um, what's her name? I think it was like Laura Ingram was talking about LeBron was like, you know, stick to dribbling or whatever. Shut shut up and dribble, stick to sports you know, don't be a distraction, right? Mm-hmm. These are all things that are said to athletes and between athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually also, I think, part of the problem. I mean, the fact that like a lot of the way in which the issues persist in sport is because athletes are discouraged from speaking their mind. We're taught to fall in line, to, to, to not stand united with one another. I mean, the, the, not to go on a tangent, but, you know, the industry of sport is built on the labor of very few people. And if athletes united and spoke in one voice about racial justice, about LGBTQ issues or gender equality, um, I think they could move corporations, they could root, they could move, you know, there's their sport governing bodies to affect greater change. They could move all the sports sponsors 
to right. make more meaningful investments. And so, um, yeah. So anyway, on my team, yeah, there was definitely a lot of heated exchanges and debates. Um, one of my, it just so happened that one of my coaches was actually closeted. Mm -hmm. And so he had been hearing me have these fights and debates with my teammates and he didn't feel comfortable saying anything himself. So he was the actual person who said, Hey, you know, would you be willing to do an interview about why you wear this sticker? Um, and so it was really, if not for him, I wouldn't have done the sticker. I wouldn't have gotten the emails. I wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't be talking to you today, probably. Wow. Wow. So then now, how long ago was this when you graduated and this all kind of happened? 2010, 2011. Okay. So now Athlete Ally has been around for like 10 years, nine years. Yeah. And talk a little bit about like, what it was on day one and what it is today, you know? Um, I know that it, it's a lot of like, you know, specific to sports, but it sounds like, you know, even the way you're thinking, do you guys participate in like broader activism outside of sports? You know, yeah, I'm curious about the whole thing. Yeah, so the first, I'd say three, three years of Athlete Ally was really just me traveling the country, talking to other athletes. Mm -hmm. um, I started to do a lot of public speaking, going to colleges specifically, talking to coaches, athletes, and administrators at those institutions about why we need to be better on LGBTQ issues. Mm -hmm. So when I was kind of at my busiest of speaking, I was going to about 50 colleges a year, which wow. was almost like two schools a week. Wow. Um, when you said you were speaking, this was mostly to administrators or would you sometimes do like speaking events to like the the whole student body or whoever wanted to come sometimes it'd be open to the student body but but more often than not it was specifically to the athletes mm -hmm. so it was you know the three four hundred athletes at a, at a school mm -hmm. uh sometimes it was just the freshman athletes usually it also incorporated uh, a private session with coaches or captains mm -hmm. but usually i'd spend a whole day meeting and talking to as many different constituents within that athletic department as possible. Mm. Um, and out of that would come, you know, schools would start athlete ally chapters. Mm -hmm. So those were kind of organized by the current, the college athletes on campus. Um, sometimes schools would, you know, invest in doing a pride game or, I don't know. It was, it was really cool. It was, um, you know, I think nine times out of 10 when I went to visit a school, it was the very first time there had ever even been a discussion about LGBTQ issues in sport. Right. And so, and it's still kind of true today. Uh, we are operating from the ground floor in a lot of this work. So um, it's, it's exciting, but it's also like, we're kind of in an era of firsts mm -hmm. and we have a long way to go to really change things in a, in a fundamental way. So those, that was the first couple years. And then, um, what, what started to happen was I started to get more professional athletes affiliated with the organization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, professional athletes have just so much more cultural capital. Mm -hmm. people, people care what a professional athlete says. Mm -hmm. Reporters will cover quotes of professional athletes, mm -hmm. like, very easily. Mm -hmm. And so one of the first things that I did with Athlete Outlaw is I started this ambassador program where I would ask professional athletes to be ambassadors of Athlete Ally, you know, put up your hand, say that you care, say that you're going to join me in trying to, you know, affect change in whatever way you feel you can. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And so that started with a handful of NFL players um, mm-hmm. who were all very vocal on marriage equality. So it was really, you know, Brendan Nyambadejo, who was a Ravens player, Chris Cluey, who was mm-hmm. played for the Vikings at, at the time, Scott Pagita. Uh, so those were like the three first like NFL guys who were really vocal on marriage equality. Um, and then those three guys started to get their friends to get involved, who then got their friends involved. And before you know it, we started to build this network of, of athletes mm-hmm. who really were trying to affect change in a really interesting, authentic way. Um, and with that, for, for Athlete Ally came more funding, more visibility. Um, I actually then could start to invest in hiring staff and you know, creating a, strate- a strategic plan and a theory of change. Um, and so, you know, fast forward to today, we now have over 400 Olympic, Paralympic professional athletes who are ambassadors. Um, at, moment, at the moment, we have about 30 athlete allied chapters on college campuses. So those are you know, groups that are run by current college athletes who are trying to change policies and organize educational events on their campus. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we have about eight full-time staff uh, mm-hmm. who are you know, doing all sorts of really interesting work. And as an organization, we, do, we have really three pillars to what we do. Um, so the first is LGBTQ education. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who needs to be educated that isn't? And how can we provide it? Um, it's kind of our long-term goal is to get LGBTQ education to be mandated for coaches. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be a coach, there should be a, a series of requirements that you have to meet in order to have that position of power. So we do a lot of work to try to train more coaches, get more resources into the hands of those who need them. Um, the second pillar of our work is around sport policy. So we do a lot of kind of policy auditing, policy reform, trying to make the policies that govern sport reflect the diversity of people who are trying to play sports. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do something called the Athletic Equality Index, where we rank college athletic departments on their LGBTQ policies. Um, we will run a lot of campaigns if there's a policy that is at odds with the principles or practices of an institution to try to get those policies to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, can say more about that. But then the third piece of our work is athlete activism. You know, really trying to help an athlete use their platform effectively, strategically, um, and not only on LGBTQ issues, but you know, we we've done big campaigns to help you know overturn the hijab ban in international basketball. We helped run campaigns to increase the number of women in FIFA governance. Um, you know, we've tried to work to address the, the disparity in medal payouts for Paralympians. So really, it's like if we can build a bigger, bigger tent where athletes are fighting on behalf of one another, then I think we can create a more equitable sports space for everybody. This is like... Um really powerful stuff. It's a lot of weight to carry on your shoulders as well, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's tough because, you know, whenever anybody who's starting a nonprofit, even though we're away a little ways into it, um, it's still really challenging. Um, you know, we're not, there are so many bigger organizations that have, you know, institutional funding <laughs> that they've had for, for years. And I think for us, it's, it's challenging to, you know, find and align on the right strategy to bring about the, the results that we want to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's also just challenging to, to like to grow, frankly, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have revenue streams that will go from $50,000 in one year to $0 the next. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're trying to work in a space that in which no one else is doing this work, mm-hmm. uh, really every dollar makes a difference. So it is, uh, it is, it is difficult, um, sort of operationally, it's difficult strategically, but the, the opportunity is endless. I mean, yeah. sport is a universal global language. Mm-hmm. And so if we could make sport perfect, mm-hmm. I think that it would, it would reverberate throughout every sector of society in, in really profound ways. Well, I see now because the conversation you and I had, I mean, maybe what, this was like six months ago, I guess, maybe seven months ago. We were talking a lot about this idea of being a generalist and I was definitely going on and on about the issues with like youth sports or something. Mm-hmm. And, but now hearing you talk about this and like having done this thing over 10 years and the way you, when we were talking, you were like, yeah, like I want to change that. I want to change youth sports. At the time I remember thinking like, oh yeah, that's a pretty big project. But now hearing what you've gone through and like what you've been working on, I see why you like, you can see how to get to something like that, right? Uh, because when we were talking, I was saying all the, the things we kind of started off here with, like the issues with youth sports, but the over-specialization, but also it leading to injuries and all these things. And um, yeah, I remember just you at the time being like, yeah, like I'm, I'll change that. I'm, I'm ready to like do that too. Is that something, is that something you, 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 you see yourself potentially doing is playing a role in trying to like revamp how you sports are like done in some way? Yeah, very much so. I have lots and lots and lots of thoughts about what I think could be done, should be done. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm fortunate in that, like, because we have an organization that is conducting research and we have staff, like we can actually potentially address some of these problems now you know, mm-hmm. and, and do it ourselves. So, um, so I remember yeah. you saying something about like changing the schedule. Or, <laughs> or, or I forget what it was. It was almost like you sign up and you were saying like people play three different sports at the same time. And it's like over four quarters of the year. Like what, do you, what was the thing? Yeah. Well, so I should say there's, that is one of many different thoughts that are percolating. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say, I will say first and foremost, I think that one of the things that is important to, to me and, and one of the things that I want to help bring about with Athlete Ally is that I think really all sports pre-puberty should be more mixed, that mm-hmm. we should have boys and girls playing sport together um, really up until high school at, at the very least, because mm-hmm. I, I do think that, you know, sport is probably one of the greatest socialization mechanisms in the world. It teaches boys how to become men. It teaches girls how to become, become women. And I think that the sex segregation in sport actually teaches really, like it teaches toxic mas- masculinity. It teaches the, the sort of the myth of male superiority. Um, and that, you know, if we can change that, if we can get more boys and girls playing sport together earlier, I think that, um, it'll just foster better relationships between the genders, which will lead to, you know, within sport, it'll lead to more women pursuing sport for longer. It will lead to more women coaching men's teams, more male fans of women's sports. Like, you know, every time a young boy gets struck out by a girl, he'll learn that throwing like a girl is not an insult. Um, So I'm very serious and thinking long and hard about how do we do that? How do we create more spaces in which boys and girls play together for longer? 
because mm -hmm. I think it'll be beneficial to everybody. But um, within and a part of that, I think where we were talking is also around this notion of pushing back against specialization and the fact that, you know, look, I am so proud of what I was able to accomplish as a wrestler. Mm -hmm. I crushed it on a lot of different levels, but there's also this, I, this voice in the back of my mind that says, you know, Hudson, if you had been a lacrosse player, you would have been even better. If you had been a, uh, you know, in doing, doing crew or baseball, or, you know, there are so many sports that I never even tried. Mm -hmm. because I specialized in wrestling almost since from the beginning. You know, I started wrestling when I was six years old. Mm -hmm. So I was denied so many athletic experiences because that's what I had been given. Mm -hmm. And while I was kind of one of the exceptions to the rule where I like continued my pursuit of my sport through college, uh, majority of athletes just do not follow that, that same path. Mm -hmm. And that is to me a choice that we can change. We can, we can rewrite the rules, rewrite the ways in which youth leagues work mm -hmm. to help retain more athletes for longer. And so, you know, one of the things that I think would be really interesting is, um, and, it, and this idea really kind of came to me thinking about the, uh, the three sisters of native American agriculture so uh, Native Americans would, would grow crops uh, in, together. So they'd grow corn, they'd grow beans, and they'd grow squash. And so the squash would line the ground, which would kill out the weeds. The corn would grow up, and the beans would grow and climb the corn. So these were these three crops that, if grown together, could all thrive. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is a really interesting concept to apply to sports, because I think that um, you know, every athlete does some amount of cross training, mm -hmm. right? We, there are movements that are beneficial to multiple sports. Mm -hmm. And if we could actually create uh, sports spaces that intentionally rotate between sports, mm -hmm. that you could actually start to help an athlete become a more well-rounded athlete, that they, they wouldn't have to self-specialize super early. They'd still be developing athletic abilities that may help whichever sport they ultimately choose. Mm -hmm. um, and it would be fun. You know, yeah. I, I, you know, if I was tired of wrestling practice, instead we'd be doing gymnastics on, on Wednesdays or, you know, whatever, we, whatever the right complementary sports might be. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, a series of leagues that have rotating sports that are designed to be complementary of each other would help create more well-rounded athletes, would help retain athletes for longer, um, and would, and would be fun. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, when we talked a little bit about this, but it's like culturally, we're just like in this like super like logical time, right? Everything needs to like make sense, right? I need to see the exact numbers. Like I talk about like things like the NFL combine, they're like measuring exact heights and exact times and exact weights that people can do. But it's like the, the people who have been the greatest were not that strong, not that mm. fast, not like all the perfect things that you're measuring. Like the creativity is that immeasurable thing. And it comes from a lot of experience. And as you said, there are skills that transcend a lot. Like if I can make your footwork better, you're going to be better at soccer, wrestling, and basketball. 
Yeah. But there's like nuances that give you creativity in each one. But as you got to kind of experience by, you know, potentially even just from dancing ballet and doing theater and all these things that like it triggered your imagination to be able to be like, oh, well, in this position, maybe I can do something else. And I think people get so caught up in like the, the linear aspect that like, oh, I need to be able to do whatever, uh, head and arm this way, exactly mm-hmm. this way every time that it like takes the, the creativity out of it. And that's, that's the X factor, right? Yeah. And we talked about like, um, I think I even sent you the link to the, what they're doing in Norway where on real sports and it's kind of what you're describing, but they're able to get away with it because of, you know, they're not a capitalist country like we are here where it's like, oh, well, we need these facilities for these youth sports and they make a ton of money on it, but they don't let kids specialize until they're like 13. Mm-hmm. It's just show up and everybody gets to participate. As you said, boys, girls, everybody plays together. There's no keeping score. There's no nothing. We just kind of oversee you either skiing or playing soccer or whatever it is. And then at 13, they get to specialize. And then all of a sudden, Norway has won more gold medals at the Winter Olympics than any other country in history or something or like whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is, you know, what you're talking about here. So how then do we just, how do we, reconcile with like the 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 capitalist issue that surrounds sports yeah well i i think that um for me the way in which we affect change and we actually get to the places we want to go is uh by by two things Mm -hmm. Uh, aligning on why it matters Mm -hmm. and then aligning on what we should do about it Mm -hmm. and so first and foremost i think the way in which we align on why this is important Mm -hmm. is frankly more research I think more research needs to be done about the both positive and negative health outcomes or psychological outcomes or emotional outcomes of sport as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and compare that against places like Norway, places where there are more fluid, less binary, more mixed sports spaces. And, you know, what are the positive outcomes of those spaces? We need, we need to build that case, build that evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do think, you know, if, if, while there are always going to be parents who are just obsessive about having their athlete be the next superstar, mm-hmm. right? And that's the, you're always going to have your super selective uh, all-star traveling team. Mm-hmm. And that's probably not unavoidable. I mean, youth sports is a what, like $15 billion industry. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I think there are a lot of other parents out there who just want what's best for their kid. Mm-hmm. And they want their kid to be, to enjoy it, to have fun. And so, um, yeah, so my plan is to try to invest in and seek funding for actual research in this space. Mm -hmm. Um, Try to start building a case for support um, as to why this is important, why we should be really questioning and rethinking this. And then, and then doing it, you know, I, I think it's like, hey, let's like start. I live in a town in New Jersey, like, I'm ready to start my, my, you know, non-binary mixed youth league of mm-hmm. rotating sports tomorrow. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's like that, that feel the dreams quote, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Uh, and I'd like to think that, but I think we just have to build it first. I think it's amazing. Hey, listen, if it, if it gets off the ground or if it starts beginning to move somewhere, sign me up. I will come in and play a role in some way because I, 
I think it's a major, major, major issue that transcends out of sports. It ends up kind of becoming a way of thinking as children become adults as well. I think yeah. it's a really big thing. Yeah. I mean, only, only 8% of, uh, of high school athletes go on to play college sports, right? Mm -hmm. So what sport teaches our youth is so important. Like, and that, and that's your, that's our time to do it. <laughs> um, because you know, kids are going to drop out of sports at yeah. some point, everybody will, everybody does either they, they make it to the end, which is a very small percentage or their take or injury takes their sport away from them, or they just stop enjoying it. And so, um, you know, I, I think we have a responsibility to better define what the positive outcomes of sport can be mm -hmm. if we create spaces that are fully inclusive and um, really help strengthen the full diversity of athletic abilities of our athletes. I love it. This is, uh, I'm all about it. <laughs> I want to get one more thing in here before I let you go. Sure. I want you to talk a little bit about magic because yes. I know it's like something you're really passionate about. Um, I've been a magic fan my entire life. Like sometimes openly, sometimes I've kept it to myself. Um, but I'm the type of person who watches like the magic specials. Um, when I was younger, I would really fantasize about getting into it. I think I even told you I had purchased a book, the Royal Road to Card Magic. But never invested. That's a great book. That's a I great never invested the time and somehow the book vanished. But um, <laughs> now as I'm, I'm talking to you, I'm like, oh, you know, I've got this time here. I should buy that book again. Um, so yeah, tell me about when you got into magic. And I, I know you're doing some other work with the magic thing now. So tell me the whole thing. And I am so obsessed with magic. <laughs> um, yeah, so I started magic when I was probably... I mean, nine or 10, I started doing that. What was your inspiration? Who was it? So my grandfather would have, uh, you know, he would used to buy me little magic kits from like FAO Schwartz, like uh, the, the disappearing matchbox or the levitating, um, like a uh, matchstick could like levitate on a card. Um, and he used to have these great little table, like dinner tricks, mm -hmm. you know, where he would, uh, he would show me, you know, his table knife. He would put a napkin over top of it. He would pour a little bit of salt over the napkin and he'd pull the napkin away and then the, the knife would be covered in salt. Mm -hmm. You know, so like this was like little simple illusions, those little simple effects um, I thought were so cool and so interesting. And um, they communicated so much without saying anything. And, you know, and then I, I started to get into card magic and um, you know, this is the, my, my exposure to magic was kind of parallel with my uh, improvement as a wrestler, right? And I really, as a wrestler, consider myself like a technician. Like I wasn't the strongest or the fastest or the most, most athletic, but technique was everything to me. And so when I started to watch more magic, I, I saw in magic what I saw in wrestling, which was, hey, this is just technical superiority. I mean, this is somebody who has clearly practiced something Mm -hmm. way longer than I fully can comprehend to able to do this impossible thing. And, um, and that, that was really appealing to me. And it's kind of what's appealing to me about all my random myriad of, of hobbies is that um, 
if you have like patience and persistence, you can kind of be good at at not anything, but like a lot of things. You, you know, if you just give yourself enough time to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and magic was one of those things that just hooked me. Um, and so specifically card magic. So when I was traveling uh, as a wrestler on the bus tournaments, a deck of cards was how I kept my mind off the match, how I kind of stayed in a, in a neutral mindset, didn't get pulled into the emotional roller coaster of the, of a tournament of a dual meet. Um, so when we, when we were on a bus, when I was sitting in the bleachers, I would always have a deck of cards on me. Um, just practicing a move, a slight, um, just repeat, 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 repeat. Mm-hmm. And, and over time, you know, you, you practice one, then you practice another and another and another. And before you know it, you have a set of tools mm-hmm. at your disposal, which are this sort of technical tool belt. And once you know enough, you can start to combine those tools in really interesting, creative, different ways. And so, um, yeah, so I've, I've, I continue to be obsessed with magic. I published a magic DVD now, I don't know, probably seven years ago. Mm-hmm. I have about a hundred pages of a magic book written that I've yet almost to be completed, but I need to get it over the finish line. So yeah. And, that, I, and, that, and that'll be on card magic. It'll be on card magic specifically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And will this be like teaching magic or will it be talking about history of teaching, okay. teaching, but, but not for your, novice i mean <laughs> uh, not for me. it's not for me yeah look i, I mean there there are things that I, i'm i'm actually really obsessed now with like um a lot of mathematical magic mm-hmm. i think there are like the i don't do you know what a pharaoh shuffle is uh i feel like i heard it when i flipped through that book but i i don't i don't remember what is so it a pharaoh shuffle is where you cut the deck perfectly 26 26 mm-hmm. and then you as you shuffle, you weave it perfectly so that every other card alternates. Wow. And so if you can do a Pharaoh shuffle, there's lots of amazing, interesting things that can happen because it's a controlled shuffle. Um, so I, I'm very interested in kind of... So can you do that? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so there's many ways in which you can control a card or cards kind of mathematically without even thinking about it mm-hmm. um, that are interesting to me. So yeah, I'm happy to tell, ask me anything about magic. I'm happy to talk forever about philosophy and I ideas. Mean, and I always have a deck of cards on hand. So oh, really? yeah. Oh, well, well, you know, it would be amazing if somehow, because when I put this out as like a podcast, it's only going to be the audio, but somehow if you could do a card trick that I could explain while you did it and it could amaze me and people listening, that would blow everybody's mm. mind no pressure but uh if it comes to you when i i when i was really young i was like i must have been six my parents took me to see david copperfield yeah and i was just like this is amazing this is the coolest thing i've ever seen and at the time you know this would have been like 1989 or 1990 mm. so he was like one of the coolest dudes alive you know, at the time he was doing all the specials and like, I don't know, he was dating like, I don't know, Heather Locklear or something yeah, crazy. Yeah. And we, I got to go up after and like meet him and he like mm. signed a headshot and everything. And I was just like, this is amazing. And I remember getting in and like getting some of like the little toys and things or the, the mm-hmm. magic packs and stuff, but I didn't have like the 
the insp- um, like inspiring family member who kind yeah. of like played some games in front of me, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've, oh, I, I love it. Like I used to, I mean, I would watch all of like the David Blaine specials. I think I told mm-hmm. you, I even saw him live when he did his thing, even though it was like meh to me. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm like, I'm totally like mesmerized by it. I, I, I watched like, you know, the, the Ricky Jay mm-hmm. um, documentary. The, I watched the two assistants or, yeah. Yeah, and then I watched um, Delt, which I thought was like- Richard Turner. That, uh... Yeah. Yeah. And all of these guys are talking about this thing that you mentioned is like, and, and the thing that you talk about with wrestling and the thing that I believe with any kind of movement that you want to be doing that it's, um, is you, you use the word like being a technician, but it's really about, it's being a practitioner, right? Putting your heart and soul into it, owning it and putting the time into it. And I watch those guys. I'm like, that's, that's what they're doing. Um, but the one thing that you said at the very beginning that really stuck out to me. So I've done this. I've talked to a whole bunch of people here. I've talked to like martial artists. I've talked to dancers and everything. Mm-hmm. But the first thing you said about magic is that it's a really interesting form of communication. And all of these people, the dancers, the martial artists, all talked about communication. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, what I think is really interesting about the thing that I do is that it's another f- form of communication. It's nonverbal communication. Mm-hmm. And magic really sits in there as well. Yeah. Right? I mean, I've watched these specials where someone, like, maybe it was David Blaine or something, who's like going to places where he can't even speak the language. And he's just like, we're going to, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to, like, communicate with you here. Yeah. Magic is fascinating because there's a series of external and internal dialogues taking place at the same time. Mm -hmm. So in any magical performance you have, the performance persona. So that is how am I as a magician presenting myself to you, the audience. Mm -hmm. You have uh, the sort of like external effect, right? Mm -hmm. What is the thing that I'm doing here? I'm sawing something in half. Mm -hmm. And then I have the internal like Spielberg, right? Like it's the the director of the piece who's Mm -hmm. telling me how I should be lifting my hands and moving my body in a way to conceal aspects of the performance Mm -hmm. and so you know in order to perform well you kind of need all three to be speaking to one another Mm -hmm. coherently and um and logically Mm -hmm. and it's a very it's such an amazing um creative experience uh Mm -hmm. both both like performing magic and creating magic because Mm -hmm. you know magic is really something that is only limited by your imagination Right. But basically all of magic can be boiled down into anything in which the initial cause and the final effect does, is not logically connected. Mm-hmm. Right. Through, through like nature and the, the, like the laws of nature. Right. Wait, say, that, say that one more time. The, 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 the start and the finish couldn't be logically connected. That's it. That's an excellent way to describe it. That is. Yeah. That's, that's, that's all that it is. Right. Is, is that, you know, so that means that I'm either it's the question is like, okay, how do I get information without you knowing that I have that information? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do I, you know, then <laughs> tell you the information I have in ways that are, that is impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is, you know, the thought that you're thinking, the card that you've chosen. Um, yeah, it's just, it's very, it's a very interesting challenge because um, you really can, you know, 
you can pose a magical question to yourself mm -hmm. and start to do a creative exercise to come up with an effect, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want the cap of this pen to appear behind my ear in, way, in a magical way. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you do that? Okay, I guess I need to first somehow get the cap off of the pen without you realizing that I've done it. Mm -hmm. Okay, how might I do that? Okay, maybe I'll, I'll use a larger motion to, uh, to do it, right? And so you can start to come up with um, a series of blocking techniques of like actual handling techniques uh, that when taken together, communicate the impossible. And, um, and I just think it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful art form. It's a beautiful creative process. And um, yeah, I, I enjoy it immensely. I mean, I think it's really like the cherry on top for like your chocolate sundae. <laughs> I think that it's like, it really like seals the deal on your whole package because it's really, oh, uh, it's really such a great thing. But like I said, it's like, it's, it's this amazing communication tool. It like really yeah. transcends yeah. across like every type of person, like age, gender, like cultural background, everything. It's just like, it's this really like binding type of um, interaction that happens. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've had the opportunity to travel uh, the world. You know, I got, got to go to a lot of different countries, um, so, some of which have much stronger language barriers than others, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so like when I went to Africa, when I went to Russia, those were two spaces, and even in China, those were all spaces in which if you didn't have, you know, any of the language to get around you can't fake there's no way of really communicating to the person you're talking to mm -hmm. like like you can with english and spanish or you can't even hear mm -hmm. at all what they're trying to say and the thing that i think is so interesting is um uh, a card trick or a coin uh, a coin effect it can be just as magical no matter whom you're performing it for Mm -hmm. uh, you actually don't need words to do incredible magic, uh, as, as Penn and Teller, I think have, have shown, but. Their show um, is great too. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I'm, I am a card person, but I'll try, uh, I, I can try one piece of magic over, uh, over the display here. Okay. Uh, I want to give it a go. Okay. So do you have an item? Do you have a coin? a piece of paper or something that you can ball up, hold in your hand uh, and conceal? Uh, yeah, let me grab, just, it doesn't matter what it is, just as long as I can put it in my hand. Yep, as, just as long as you can conceal it in a hand. Okay, so put okay. it in one of my hands. Put it in one of your hands. And so this is the, uh, this is the classic game of which hand. Okay. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's it, I enjoy it because it's such a pure, sort of timeless, timeless game. Uh, but we are going to play with some rules. We're going to play this game a little differently, uh, especially because we're, we're over a screen and I need the help. Um, so here's what I'm going to have you do. I want you to, you're going to decide inside of your mind whether or not you want to be a liar or a truth teller. Okay, don't tell me which. Okay. If you're a liar, you're going to lie to whatever questions I ask you. Mm -hmm. If you're a truth teller, you're going to tell the truth to whatever questions I ask you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So decide for yourself which one you want to be. Okay. Okay. Uh, your object is now, you know, choose which hand you want it to be in. Okay. And let me, and 
You can bring your hands up when you're done. Okay. Okay. I'm going to ask you, is the object in your left hand? Think about your answer. Go ahead and tell me. No. No, it's not in your left hand. Okay, bring your hands back down out of, out of frame. And now you're going to, you're going to, uh, you're going to make a choice. You're going to, you're going to switch hands mm -hmm. or don't switch hands. Okay. Do, do so now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, if you are a liar, you're going to lie again. If you're a truth teller, you're going to tell the truth again. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you, did you switch hands? No. Okay. Oh, so no, you didn't switch hands. Uh, okay, so this is this is interesting. I now know two things about you. Uh, you're a terrible liar, uh, which is why you almost always tell the truth. And uh, the object is in your right hand. Yeah, it is. <laughs> ah, that was amazing. That was amazing. Uh, that's uh, that's a little little magic trick for you. And it's fun you. about that is you can do that with you know five people at once, which is uh, I think more interesting, more impressive. But, but again, reminds me of a Copperfield special where it was like they did the whole special and then there was one moment where it was like, and now we're going to do a trick for you at home. And like, you got to go up to the screen and be like, pick a card. And I remember like putting my finger on the card on the, on yeah. the screen and then the other card starting to vanish and then like leaving your finger on the one card. And I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> I love that, man. That was super cool. So if people want to participate in an athlete ally can they go to the website and donate and look for ways to even show up and participate in some way yeah absolutely so um yeah definitely check us out at athleteally.org um or at athlete ally on instagram and twitter and facebook so definitely whichever way is right for you we'd love to hear from you um for you to be in touch and then i would say you know beyond that um everybody has an alma mater so whether or not you put us in touch with your alma mater. Um, I mean, if you do, that'd be great. But if you know somebody who's involved in sports as a coach, as a PE teacher, um, as a, a parent of an athlete, uh, I ask that you just talk to them. You know, I think uh, progress doesn't occur unless we engage in difficult dialogue. Mm -hmm. So if you want to make the sports space a more welcoming one, I encourage you to just talk to people who you know who have connections to sport ask them what they're doing to make it a more welcoming environment for the LGBTQ community and uh, put athlete ally on their radar. Amazing. I'm, uh, I'm going to check it out. And um, that, this was great, man. This was so awesome.